before we start today's show, I have two notes. One, the next few Tomes of Magic episodes as we wait for Lore of the Traditions to come out are going to be on books from other lines that we think can apply to Mage. After this, we're talking mummy. Also, this book goes hard on the 90s. There's a child predator, some bad touching, an attempt to present sexism within organizations via the one-point flaw of woman, which is a choice. We don't go into details on any of these, and generally the last of those we find kind of cringeworthy, but uh, we wanted to tell you that before we got into it. And with that, on with the show. Hello, Mage fans, and welcome to Mage the Podcast, the podcast that works hard towards ascension so you don't have to. I'm your host, Adam Simpson. I'm joined by co-host Terry Robinson. Today, we are going to expose multiple layers of corruption and paranoia in the government, not our podcast. We're, we're fine. Don't worry about us. But anyway, the government, Mo, they, they have problems. So... In that vein, we are going to launch into another episode of Tomes of Magic. We are going to talk about Project Twilight, finally a book that brings us the truth about what's going on in the U.S. government. But before that, Terry, how you doing? And are there any announcements? I'm doing fine. And the immediate thing I thought of when reading through this is I got a flashback to, I think it was when you and I did Book of Shadows, and it had a quote from the band live at the beginning. And I was just like, I remember that episode to go, love gold. And it reminds me that the fact that Arc Dream Publishing is reprinting all of the early 90s supplements for Delta Green. And it is just scattered with references from culture from my youth. And with each page, all the cartilage in my body slightly turned into dust. So I really don't have <laughs> any additional commentary there. But when they're going through and they're like, oh, yes, this is a haggard old woman. She's 39. I'm like, I'm 39. I've never felt directly attacked by a White Wolf book before. She's like, wonder what she did with her life. I'm like, I'm wondering what I did with my life. This was supposed to be for kids. These comments are cutting. So uh, that's... <laughs> my only note is that Adam and I have, have, have kind of reached through the a lot of the text that we would like to initially do. We're going to wait until Lore of the Tradition comes out, and then we're going to go back and cover some of those. In the meantime, we're going to be doing kind of Tomes of Magic. It won't say Tomes of Magic, but it will be, in many cases, me and a guest host talking about a book, possibly for another game line. So that will be the spiritual fill-in until those uh, books come out. So if you are looking for people to have strong opinions about material they may not have played, do not worry. We will continue to provide that. And once those actual books are out, Adam and I will, will reunite our beards long and haggard from our time apart, and we will have opinions on things. Yeah, so up to this point in Tomes of Magic, by my count, we have covered 102 books, which uh, some people How? might consider a lot. How are there so many? Yeah, I, I uh, can think back. There were some times where I was uh, putting some effort in there. I guess 102 books is a bit of work. As they say, nice work if you can get it. And I must say, I did enjoy the time. I certainly enjoyed recording with Terry. But before we drift off into uh, nostalgia, let's take a look at Project Twilight. This book came out in 1995. The author was Chris Howard. It was developed by the inimitable... Bill Bridges. It clocks in at about 106 pages, maybe one or two more if you count the sample character sheet for government agents. And this book was a lot of fun, but Terry, can we start off a walkthrough? I will be glad to. 
the first bit of opening fiction is entitled Alley Tag. And it's always weird to see a fiction in the front and have it not be called The Prelude. So this fiction is first person, which was absolutely jarring to me because throughout mage fiction, it is generally third person, third person omniscient. This was first person. It is about a lady detective wondering what she did with her life, piecing together some sort of thing that is tearing her town apart. It is just an utter blast of unalloyed 1990s and the things we were worried about then or the things that were in media because one of the recurring things is like, yeah, their life was destroyed by illegal drugs. I'm like, ha, this is the year 2023. People's lives are now destroyed by prescription drugs and other things that are entirely legal, albeit abused. Wait till you get to my friend Fentanyl, young lady. And it's always weird when you look at the world of darkness and you'd be like, oh man, that thing in the world of darkness is supposed to be bad. It would be great if we could just have that instead of the real thing that we're currently dealing with, which is bad. But it was a perfectly reasonable bit of fiction. The one thing that was odd is at one point she talks about getting her throat torn out. And then in the next section, it just continues on. I'm not sure what was supposed to happen there. (laughs) What's up, Adam? (laughs) Well, I was just thinking you were talking about a cross-section of uh, typical 90s concerns. And I noticed there was the concern over the motorcycle gang. And that seemed like like an 80s thing. I remember so much 80s television where it's like, oh no, the motorcycle gang is rolling into town. The town is terrified. And it's like, okay, there's one holdover from previous times. The decades aren't don't always line up to, to how we remember them, especially for things like fashion, because it's one of those things where it's like, oh yeah, this thing that actually came out in 1981, my family wasn't able to afford it until ours broke and we had to get a replacement in 1997. So yeah, I was always the kid a couple years behind that suddenly had like used hammer pants that we had gotten at like TJ Maxx or something like that. My own kind of time traveling, the the crappy kind that involved parachute <laughs> pants. Uh, but what, what did you think of the opening fiction, Adam? It was a good example of a mortal in way over her head. So it, it worked in that sense, because I, I think that's kind of the theme of this book is mortals going up against the supernatural and finding out that they're in over their heads. What I thought was odd was an FBI agent working on her own. I, th- I thought when FBI agents did field work, they at least put them in pairs. And so that, that seemed to be a little funny to me. But you know, I've never worked for the FBI, so I, I guess I'm really not an expert in that area. But uh, hey, let's hear about the intro. Yeah, if we consult that famous FBI documentary, The X-Files, generally you work in pairs. And the first answer on Google when I say, do FBI agents always work in pairs, is generally yes, from the webpage Quora. And if you can't believe Quora, I don't know what you can believe. We then go on to the introductions, and it basically asks the question, are mortals screwed? And it says no, for two reasons. We have purpose, unlike vampires. And then, no, we're organized, unlike the Garou. So I love the way it can't actually say mortals are good at anything, but it can say that night folk are bad at things. <laughs> and those that's the edge we have. It doesn't bring up that we outnumber them like hundreds of thousands to one. It's like, nope, we got organization and we have purpose. And I'm like, do we, do we, have you ever been to a small child's birthday party? And have you ever asked a teenager what they want to do with their life? If that were your cross section, the answer to both would be no. It then indicates that the government hides the supernatural for a variety of reasons. One is if people know about it, they don't want to freak people out. Another one is the organizations are frequently compromised by the supernatural themselves and their supernatural paymasters don't want to reveal themselves. It indicates that of the agencies in the book, they have considerable leeway 
to deal with the supernatural and an agent has never been reprimanded for doing a bad thing to a supernatural. So the technocracy is like, we, these are people we can get behind. Investigation of the supernatural has ramped up in the last three years, which is to say uh, since 1992, which I kind of assume is to supposed to somewhat sync up with the X-Files as well as a number of other pop culture things. It makes a lot of reference to black book funding, which is lump sum funding that is provided to a agency or organization where it does not specifically tell Congress, this is what we want. So for people outside of the US or for people not familiar with American civics or for people like me who didn't actually remember how this worked until I checked into it, a lot of the agencies we have here are law enforcement agencies or intelligence collections agencies, which in the US is generally under the executive branch. It is a branch of the US government that is entrusted with implementing law, as in it is their job to enforce it. Congress provides funding for it, that those are the elected upper and lower houses, although most budgetary stuff goes to the lower house, uh, which is to say the House of Representatives, and every organization has its request. The president provides a budget. Congress makes modifications and says, here's your monies. In Black Book funding, they simply say like $250 billion, you know, CIA stuff. And Congress may or may not be briefed on what that is. Generally, there are a few high-ranking people with security clearances and so that that find out how it works. That's my very high-level overview. It lists that the government is restricted in what it can do because it is anything being done in government is divisive, ruthless, and prone to infighting. And I'm like, eh, some things may not have changed too much. And then we get what the themes are. It says, in games where you're playing a hunter, you are trying to enforce a status quo or return to one. Uh, This is what Robin Laws would refer to as a procedural hero, someone who goes out into the world, sees that it is in the wrong state, and then tries to change the world, as opposed to a transformational hero that goes out into the world, does something, and they themselves are primarily changed by it. The mood that they list is, it is a race against time. The supernatural will slowly infiltrate over time. There will be a tightening web of paranoia. And it recommends that you implement this by just having things be slightly off, like returning home and finding that the phone receiver is slightly out of place, like someone put it down wrong. And I look at that and I'm like, that's a cool idea. But with my players, they would then spend three and a half hours investigating the phone. So maybe we don't do that. (laughs) Know your players. They say it's important to walk the line between maintaining order and what they fight and not becoming that. And if you are interested in that as a game, my recommendation is Hunter the Vigil. What'd you think about the introduction, Adam? I was uh, glad that it explained the title of the book. Project Twilight is sort of an unofficial term that government agents refer to when they're investigating the supernatural. So it's like Twilight, the divider between night and day. So it's like they're skirting the edge of darkness when they look into the supernatural. And so they, they call it that. This book is basically an expansion of the, the first Hunters Hunted, which was kind of a vampire uh, supplement. It's, it's mortals who go after the supernatural. And this is more focused. But it really, you know, throughout the book, it reads like it is a further treatment of Hunter's Hunter, which which is fine. I think this sort of book would fit quite well with Vampire Masquerade, Mage the Ascension. When it comes to Werewolf and Wraith, it can work with it, but it's not a, in my mind, it's not a natural fit. And when it comes to Changeling, it's like, no, sorry, not going to happen. Any agents come across Changelings, they're just going to forget them later. And I really have a hard time seeing changelings as wanting to interact with government agents. I just don't think they're the two groups that would really enjoy each other's company. So Yeah. <laughs> um, but of course, if you want to mix it uh, at your table, then let us know how it goes because you're probably uh, thinking of something that I'm not. But 
I'm ready for chapter one. Chapter one. This book is broken into two books, and the first book in this book is entitled Book One, At Midnight, All the Agents. I don't know if that's a reference to something, but it just kind of is only part of a sentence that ends in an ellipsis. But you know what? I'm going to roll with it. Chapter one is entitled Whoever Hunts Monsters. And right out of the gates, we get new powers. It's like, you're immortal. You're screwed. What are you going to do? The only thing you have to deal with this are incredibly powerful weapons. The fact that you outnumber your enemy and the ability to control fire with your mind. And I'm like, okay, maybe this fight is not as lopsided as I was first led to believe that it is. (laughs) It also has an aside that says that anyone with three or more dots in a single phenomenon, path, or true faith is considered partially awakened and are immune to the effects of the delirium. That's pretty useful because the delirium is the phenomenon whereby a mortal who witnesses a werewolf shift into Krinos, which is their half-wolf, half-human war form, more or less just runs away screaming. It mentions that people with exceptionally high willpower may also be immune to this. I mean, you make a resisted role, and if you run the math on it, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, out of 100 people, they say that only like one will be resistant of it. But if you're on the numbers on it, you're like, no, about 13% are going to be like, well, that's weird. (laughs) Look at that furry tractor with claws. In which case, I feel like protecting the existence of werewolves is a bit more difficult than at first they would uh, believe. But we get a number of, of new things. One is covert culture, which is the occult background, but for the intelligence community. So you're familiar with the goings on of various secret organizations in power. Backers, somebody supports you, but you don't know why. Equipment, you get stuff. We get a detailed requisition system or a detailed resources system, as it were, with an absolutely delightful table that we will talk about more later. Uh, Favors, you get large one-off favors that you can kind of go through. It is indicated that once they are used, you cannot get them back. But if you're playing a hunter game and you only expect your character to live for five or six sessions, who cares? (laughs) I'm perfectly fine. (laughs) with that that's one of those things where it's like i never like things in character creation they only get to be used once i'm like oh you're probably you're probably not making it too far you're probably not doing a lot of leveling up with this guy so uh yeah there's also uh rank which is just what it is at one dot you are the lowest level within an organization at five you're a a general an intelligence head or some analog and then we get new psychic phenomenon we get Animal Psy, which is the ability to control animals with your mind. Anti Psy, the ability to jam other people's psychic powers with your mind. And Psychometry, the ability to see past events in a place or an object with your mind. We also get the hegemonic path of divination. Again, you get to see things, albeit this time not necessarily with your mind, although I imagine it ultimately appears in your mind at some point. We also get the greatest flaw in the history of White Wolf, female. This is a one-point flaw that basically says, hey, normally people in the world of darkness treat male and female characters or male and non-male characters the same. But for whatever reason, you have to face sexual discrimination and harassment, which is all too common in the world of darkness. Have fun with that. So this is a choice. It's one of those things where you're like, well, this actually does make the game in a certain critical way more realistic, but much like having a hunger or an encumbrance system in a game, maybe I don't want the game to be more realistic. (laughs) So, but it's there. 
Yeah. And the other thing that bothers me about it is like based on the descriptor and based on history, it's only one point, which feels a little bit too low. But we also get other things about you have a license to kill, you have top secret access. And this is interesting because these point values are worth different amounts than they would be in Mage. And I like that because in certain games, things are going to be worth more. Unbondable in a game that has a lot of vampires that you're interacting with should cost way more than in a game where you're not really running into vampires. Just in case you felt that having female as a flaw was too specific, we also get minority as a flaw. Again, realistic in a way I don't want realism. We get information on the standard issue G-Man kit. This is the stuff that you get. You get a salary with a stipend for expenses and two dots in resources, a badge and certain security clearances. You get a gun and a different gun and a third gun. God bless America. Sad agents also get a wooden stake and a mallet, a police band radio, and handcuffs so you can have fun after work. We then go on to the other specific items. We get more information on Curly and photography, which purportedly is able to capture people's auras. It was developed in the 1800s initially, but Simon Curlian perfected it in the 1940s. It is not accepted by academic parapsychologists, but field researchers know the truth. That is to say, they actually have the money to get it. This is something where it keys in and can notionally see the corpus and pathos of a wraith and take pictures through the shroud, which is kind of cool. You could also get the video camera version of it. And then starting on page 24, we get a table indicating what rank you need to get something, what the item is, and what the restrictions surrounding it are. The cell phone here is listed as almost standard issue. I'm like, oh, okay. It also says that at rank five, you can get a military jet, but the restriction is you have to fill out a form in triplicate. And I'm, like, I'm like, okay, do, does the player have to create that form and then fill it out? Like, how is this a restriction? It's like, oh no. Okay. I need you to roll. I need you to roll stamina plus etiquette to see if you can fill out this form without your hand cramping. There's that realism again. Exactly. If, if you don't show me an example of that form, I'm, I'm just, I'm just not going to give it to you. Okay. You got to put some effort into my game. If you want to be a government. You call agent. this a TC-114 completion? Got it. <laughs> completion a child would do. But it's just amazing to me to see what appears to be a functioning resource system. Uh, the powers are fun and interesting. They help you discover clues or do interesting stuff. And it is just, the whole thing is just dripping with what people thought of the government in the 90s. And you're like, no, 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 guys. You just, you think this group is far more capable than they actually are and, <laughs> and far more competent and internally coherent. Yes, there are a lot of well-meaning people in government level law enforcement that are just trying to keep people safe, but there's a lot of idiots and there's a lot of assholes too. <laughs> and, and a little bit more on those latter groups would be <laughs> would make it vastly more realistic. But those are just my thoughts. Uh, What did you think about chapter one, Adam? Chapter one was very focused on a chronicle where all of the players are mortal government agents. And so the, the chapter was written from that perspective. And so my perspective is I'm picking up this book saying, okay, I want some information on NPCs. What is it? Uh, acolyte player characters who are going to support you know the mages because the troop style play, I, I swear, I, I really love that. So keeping that in mind, when I look at some of the merits and flaws, I mean, they're, they're very focused on that uh, all government agent game, but they fit, they work for that. 
And that's why I liked him. I think the merits and flaws in this chapter are well done, and I think I would use most of them. Even though they are focused for, you know, the all-agent game, I think they still apply when you're pulling in, I don't use merits and flaws for NPCs, but when you have an acolyte player character who's, you know, helping out the mages, I think this stuff can, can still help, because even though they might be hanging out at, at chantries, they're going to help the mages by interacting with other government agents and going to government places. And so I think these offerings in this chapter are going to work. I am glad they're here. I thought it was very interesting that government agencies know of psychic powers and they are actively trying to recruit psychics, either as test subjects or as, as agents of their own. I, th I thought it was so interesting because I just assumed coming into this book that the government agencies know nothing. You know, the, the vampires and the werewolves, uh, they're the ones who know what's actually going on. It's like, no, no, the, the government agency has uh, you know, penetrated somewhat into the shadows and they do know some of what's out there, just not as much as, as say, mages do. I just really thought that opens up some possibilities for games where the government agencies are you know, rounding up their own psychic agents and then seeing what they can do with that. I thought the anti-psi noumena uh, psychic power was very interesting because it can actually interact with the mind sphere. Now, I don't think anti-psychic is, is on a level playing field with, say, um, a master of the mind sphere. I'm not advocating that, but it is interesting to say that someone with a mage with, like, mind three or less, they, they could have some legitimate problems with uh, anti-psychic. And uh, they might even wonder if it's a, they're going toe-to-toe -to -toe with a mage and have to, to work out that complication. So I, I like that possibility for games. I liked seeing the equipment in this chapter, but I would expect more uh, statistics on that equipment. Because when I am, you know, as a storyteller, when I'm thinking, oh, yeah, this Project Twilight book, it's, it's got a bunch of government equipment. Okay, I'm going to go look it up uh, as I prep for this game. It's like there's, there's not a lot of stats. It's just sort of descriptions and names of equipment. So I thought that was a shortcoming of this chapter. Now, of course, reading through this, it does show that this chapter, you know, this book is 25 years old. It talks about, uh, you know, paper printing fax machines and not every agent has a cell phone and things like that. And so, you know, I've talked with some World of Darkness fans and say, oh, that's so outdated. And I was like, well, yes, but how long does it take for a storyteller to update this material reading through it? Like, what, three seconds? <laughs> just, okay, everybody's got a cell phone. Okay, we're not using fax machines anymore. Wow, <laughs> hey, we're caught up. And, and just, you know, minor edits like that that take just a second for the storyteller to do. So the fact that this material is 25 years old, it, it just doesn't hinder me. It, it does not slow me down. I'm glad it's here. I'm still going to use it. Uh, just minor updates, which are very quick to make. So th that's my thoughts on Chapter 1. How about Chapter 2? Chapter 2 is entitled... FBI, Special Affairs Division. This is uh, the organization known as SAD, gets described here. We get opening art by Brian LeBlanc, whose signature thing is, is that every character is approximately five foot two inches tall and appears to not have teeth so much as fangs. So that creates a kind of an interesting thing there. Uh, in one, there's just a microphone kind of leaning on the side, like you were able to tap someone's call by just leaving a karaoke machine on the floor above them, which if so, this is technology I am not familiar with, but uh, it, it certainly evokes a mood. It's also interesting because one of the character has a tattoo that just says pythons, and I immediately think of the programming language as opposed to the street gang. So that's how cool I am. The uh, Special Affairs Division, or THAD, was founded in the 1930s by Charles Horner under Elliot Ness after he survived what seemed to be a supernatural attack by a vampire. He kept track of it. In 1943, 
Charles Horner is a member of the OSS and is investigating a Nazi spy ring led by Wolf Steiger. Steiger gets shot multiple times and Horner is like, that's not normal. Normally when I shoot Germans, they die. Hmm. SAD is formally created in 1952 after Herbert Hoover is convinced that the supernatural exists. A separate branch of the FBI is set up to investigate it. Horner leads the agency through the 50s, finds the head of a bruja who is kept in a jar under lock and key in their vault. The group grows to 25 agents, but in 1957, investigating a voodoo plus free love cult, six agents go and never return. It's like, yeah, all of our agents were investigating that free love group and uh, they never came back my terrible fates must have befallen them yes absolutely terrible last i saw him he was sipping a drink with a pineapple in it surrounded by many attractive naked people it, <laughs> he's given the greatest sacrifice of all horner suspects that the garu exists and is working on their connection with the american indian movement they talk about the main ads a revolutionary feminist group both operations are bungled and he dies later in a hunting accident a suspicious hunting accident george thomason recklessly pursues the kindred and can't get conclusive evidence and by the 90s there are only five agents left in the special affairs division you could say that they've gone hungry that was a temple of the dog lyrics during the investigation of a garrow attack on alaskan oil workers for endron sad is fired upon by edron who all seem to be armed with flamethrowers didn't know that was just kind of a default thing that you had when dealing with werewolves i guess because it does ag damage they are now up to 23 agents and 12 support staff members dun, dun, dun. a particular senator's grand daughter was abducted by wolves during her coming out party. Senator Grebholb takes interest in uh, SAD and champions it in exchange for information in help finding his granddaughter. The organization is currently led by Gerald Osborne at the top, who reports to the FBI bureau chief, who doesn't ask too many questions. Below him is Cynthia Forrest, who does the day-to-day -day operations, followed by regional directors who are assisted each by field supervisors. And you're like, okay, you got five regions, you got two people, there's only 23 people at the agency. That's like half of them are in upper management somehow. Like you sometimes look at these things, you're like, how do you exist? We get information on Martin Fisk, who is the head of internal security. There is an internal investigation mechanism in the form of tribunals that can investigate cases of agents acting against the best interests of the organization or violating civilian law. There are a number of internal factions within it. Again, I love how Old World of Darkness this is where it's like there are only nine members and they are arranged into seven political factions. I'm like, isn't that just people at that point? You have the Minutemen who are described as clan-like and want to rid the country of foreigners, feminists, and weirdos. They tend to use excessive force. They want to stage a coup against Osborne, who they consider to be a bleeding heart. They have a strict no girls allowed policy that when that was mentioned in there, I just assumed that there was a sign that said that in front of their treehouse and like the S on girls was backwards and this freezes them out of Cynthia Forrest capable work who would otherwise agree with them where it's it's one of those things where you're like I understand you're a bad guy I understand you're a sexist but you could be a much more effective bad guy if you weren't so sexist uh, we also get information on the underground which has four members they're academic lefties which is to say they are probably far to the political right for normal for like compared to the spectrum of Americans but within the FBI they are the they are the bleeding hearts um, we then get information on the wireheads which are two members who are compromised Manchurian candidates who report back to someone. 
we get more information on the FBI in total, where it is mostly just law enforcement. The FBI is the United States federal domestic law enforcement agency. So they are the group entrusted with enforcing certain aspects of federal law. I mean, a bunch of it is administrative as well. So I'm not going to say like the, the EPA when they're enforcing environmental regulations is like a branch of the FBI. We get mentions to their COINTELPRO operations, where the FBI infiltrated social movements in an attempt to disrupt them. This was everything ranging from the Ku Klux Klan to like the American Socialist Party. One of those I'm fine with, the other one not so much. There may also be supernatural attempts to infiltrate other World of Darkness groups like they tried to infiltrate the Nosferatu or the Bruja or the Children of Gaia. Give me information on that. Like I want this agent that is wearing the jacket that says FBI on it with the mirrored sunglasses, the white shirt and the tie going to a Nosferatu haven and being like, yeah, I'm one of you guys. Let me, let me in. And they're like, you can walk in sunlight and you, you, you could also pass for like a catalog model. We're like, yeah, it's a very particular weird emanation of Curse of Cain. Let me in. <laughs> to think that they haven't had success with that yet. You're like, okay, you play lacrosse professionally. You were a member of a fraternity. You were a Boy Scout. You are active in your church. You attend zoning board hearings. Then you went to college and now you are a fed. Yeah, this person is going to flawlessly fit into the Bruja. <laughs> Famed fans of order and organization, those Bruja they. <laughs> <laughs> to think it hasn't worked. We then get a section entitled Indoctrination. And as a person who's read literally anything about the technocracy, I, I rub my hands together and I'm like, oh, what twisted indoctrination methods do they have? And they're like, first they go to basic training, which may last for several weeks. And I'm like, okay. And then it ramps up from there and it's like, and then they attend a mixer with light refreshments. And you're like, this is much less devious than I anticipated. And it's like, yeah, then they go on a first mission where they encounter the supernatural after they've been primed to see it. And I don't know, maybe they get shot at by a werewolf or something. And I'm like, that ramps up very suddenly. <laughs> that's that's going to be a fun first session. They know some stuff. They, they find out about basic large organizations like the Camarilla. They talk about how they kind of associate certain clans with certain groups. Like the book uses communist and Bruja interchangeably. <laughs> And that's a choice. They think the Nosferatu are the worst, probably because they killed the guy wearing the sports jacket that I previously mentioned. They're aware of werewolves. They think they're tied to American Indians. And they do have silver bullets because they're like, well, weird things work against vampires. Let's hope they work against werewolves. They know very little about mages, except for the cultists of ecstasy. Uh, Verbena and Hermetics are known to help as consultants. The virtual adepts generally keep them on the down low. And this is a game style I hadn't really considered, where your group is kind of like consulting detectives trying to both help local law enforcement if you want to be a narc, but also kind of in exchange saying, okay, investigate these mages, not these mages. Ah, uh, yes, investigate anything the light touches. What about the dark area over there? No. <laughs> Forces two kids. They enthusiastically investigate ghosts. I really like that it was specifically listed as enthusiastically. Like after being attacked by, by vampires and being nearly decapitated by werewolves, they're like, hot dog, a ghost. Let's go, boys. It can't affect us and we can't affect it. So let's get weird. We then get the 10 most wanted. And this is pretty cool. Number 10 is an unknown werewolf who appeared to have really messed up a pottery barn based on the illustration 
information on page 33. You're like, do you know how expensive their dining tables are? And he broke like four of them. Then we get number nine, Charlotte Holmes, who seems to be a mage or someone with a bunch of dot and legends that is like, she's helped us solve many crimes. She's been nothing but useful. She is helpful. Figure out who she is and then take her down. <laughs> it's like, wait, what? Number eight is a werewolf cop killer. Number seven is the hook. It's a guy with a hook. Who doesn't want to have to deal with the hook? I don't, because that seems like a real weird game. I'm not sure how you'd investigate it. Number six is a crazy flapper who mails vampire stuff to the agency. Again, this part of the problem is they're not very good at telling the difference between friend and foe, where they're like, number seven, crazy homicidal murderer. Number six, person who sends us clues repeatedly, but also really likes the Charleston. Number five is a character of some sort that is listed as having... Haitian roots that suggest that she's a black spiral dancer and you're like and I just think that's hilarious the way it, that's like asking someone mages are they werewolves or vampires and you're like that is a poorly formed question <laughs> you're like what type of ice cream is your favorite hot dog and you're like wait what <laughs> I actively feel like I'm having a small stroke number four is Dr. Timothy Archer Clark who is some sort of hippie cultist um, number three is a Nazi vampire investigator in the form of Wolf Steiger number two is an unknown guy who bit the town of Eviston against itself which was pretty cool and is behind what is known as the Evanston massacre and number one is the guy who killed the previous boss who based on the description does not skip neck day at the gym the most wanted list is kind of fun it just gives you a starting space and then you can tell that this is an older white wolf book because we get a floor layout we also get thumbnail sketches of all the personalities involved and on page 41 we appear to see a mannequin with a salt rifle so that's that's kind of a thing. Go art. But it gives you an idea of what the special affairs to office looks like, where things are located. If you're doing a, a thing where you're breaking into it, all that information is there. There's a lot of information on security doors. No systems are really given. I like the fact that they specifically have a screening room that's like the department has a medium sky screening room, which can be used for meetings or multimedia presentations. I'm like, okay, so they have movie night. That's good. I'm glad we got that established. So what did you think about chapter two, Adam? I keep thinking the FBI has a special affairs division, but actually page 27 makes it clear it's a special affairs department. And so I, I just have these these nightmares that I'm going to be running a game or something with players all around the table. And I say, the FBI is sending their special affairs division then all the players are going to like start snickering and laughing at me but uh i would run that idea that, there, that it actually has both there's a special affairs division that hates the special affairs department oh <laughs> like, i did not see that, yep. that and then we can have the game where it's deception. like you're not sad we're sad <laughs> <laughs> there you go sad fight that's the way to run that okay well i thought this chapter was well structured and i really enjoyed uh, the story hooks as terry pointed out some of them may need a little adjustment but i mean there's so much in here that i I just thought was was cool and appropriate and, and would be fun to work into a game. It, it was cool, and at the same time, it kind of made sense that the virtual adepts kind of keep tabs on the special affairs department and the FBI. They pay attention to what they're doing. They hide information from the SAD about mages, the fact that there are mages and the, the names of their groups. I thought the, the map of the SAD office was actually a, a pretty good idea, and, and not, you know, for combat scenes or, 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 you know, finales to a story, but just for day-to-day -day kind of social interactions. I, I think it's nice to kind of have this 
layout that you can show to the players. It's like, look, this office is next to this office. And if you're going to go talk to this person, you're probably going to, you know, pass these other people. And so think about that if you're trying to keep something uh, quiet. And so I, I like the office layout. I, I think it's quite helpful. It, it had a good uh, level of, of detail, which makes it more useful. And one of the things I like about the early, maybe mid nineties world of darkness books was some of those, you know, building floor plans. I just remember the uh, Arcanum book that we covered a while back that also had a floor plan of their headquarters mansion. And I just think that's a lot of fun. I think that can add a lot of uh, detail to social interaction scenes in a game. So I'm, I'm definitely in favor of it. But uh, yeah, I, I don't have a lot of insight to share on this chapter, but I, I just really enjoyed it. I thought there was a lot of fun material in here. I thought the author did a great job. So what's in chapter three? Chapter three is the National Security Agency, the NSA. It talks about how the NSA was founded as part of a classified document that was signed in the winter of 1952 by President Truman. And I'm like, this sounds a little, nope, entirely true. It is, its founding was classified. We do not have access to it. And I'm like, huh, son of a gun. It is the United States signals intelligence body, which means that it does not use human assets. Its primary goal is to investigate international sources of intelligence. Signals usually is involving compromising other nation states or other actors, digital, electronic, or material information transit. So generally, they're not spies or setting up moles in the traditional sense. That is the remit of the CIA. The NSA, over time, and, and this is kind of presaged here, is normally it focuses internationally, but over time, it has been doing more and more domestic things. For instance, it also provides information to the military and does code breaking and, and provides intelligence support for the rest of the Department of Defense, which is the organizational unit that they are under. One of my favorites is, part of them is the National Reconnaissance Office. And one day, the National Reconnaissance Office asked NASA, they're like, hey, we're going to decommission these two satellites. Could you use them? And and NASA's like, this is better than what we have. And you're decommissioning it because it's too old? Yeah, I guess we'll take it. Uh, and they're like, okay, it's yours. You're not allowed to ask any questions, though. And NASA's like, okay, that was weird. So, <laughs> so, so yeah, the NRO. NSA, the single largest employer of mathematicians on the face of the planet. The thing that is interesting is within this world of darkness, the NSA appears to be a little bit bigger. It is listed as having a headcount of approximately 60,000. Uh, currently, the best estimate of the headcount of the NSA is in the, the low 30s, and it's probably grown since the 90s. So but that... That's fine. They're mentioned as having military and civilian branches, but I know them to do military intelligence, but not necessarily have a military chain of command. Again, this is just stuff I was able to find double checking it while, while Googling it. I am by no means an expert. It is presented as having a lot of people and money. It does. It then presents the groups within it. The first is the Gordian Knot. They, like the technocracy, think technology should be controlled by a priesthood. They're unaware that there is an actual technocracy out there. You have the Neo-Luddites who think technology is dangerous. They know about the technocracy and they hate them. I thought this was a uh, a good contrast. We have the goddamn Magapiaites, which leak some information and feel information should be free. Group Delphi, which is an interagency group that gathers intelligence. They always seemingly have appropriate clearances. I like this. This is an easy auto-insert if you're like, yeah, there happen to be one or two mages or something similar within the organization. Or alternatively, this is the spirit conspiracy within the conspiracy trying to, to root out something weird that's happening. The regulators, who are the shadowy 
enforcement branch that do enforcement activities. I did not know the NSA to have an enforcement aspect to it, but again, I'm just some guy. And then finally, the Crow's Nest, which is a training group for spies, which also felt a little bit weird because, again, the NSA generally doesn't do human intelligence or human that does signals intelligence as SIGINT. The facilities listed as here are mostly Fort Meade and another one near Friendship Airport where I'm like, what the dink is Friendship? Oh, BWI Thurgood Marshall. Okay, yeah, name change. It is listed as having layers of cyclone fence 10 feet high and that it is impossible to get to the building. In 2010, I went to the NSA Museum and assuming you're there during normal business hours, you can go right through those three layers of cyclone fences by going up to the garden saying, hi, I'm coming to the museum. And they say, please just enjoy the museum. There is a weird part where if you go right instead of left, you will accidentally make your way to their absolutely labyrinthine building where I imagine you need to have 200 IDs to get in. But if you're just trying to get inside the fence nowadays, it's actually quite easy. It's a good museum. I recommend going if you happen to be in the area. I went with a couple friends years ago and I met a tech millionaire who had retired at the age of 31 and was touring the country and was an absolute conspiracy theorist. That was a case where life imitated mage. The building is presented as protected again for, by these very high fences. Fences so high that you would need a relatively short ladder to get over them. It is also protected by a labyrinthine structure as well as the place being under constant security camera, computer badge access systems. Uh, internally, it is also looked over by supernatural creatures who each have their own turf inside the building. I would have loved a little illustration that's like, hey, here's the building and here's the different areas that different groups control. But needless to say, a floor plan of the NSA building has not been published to the internet for public consumption. It also makes mention of the computer facilities that they have. One is Lodestone 4, which is listed as able to perform trillions of operations per second. And it is so powerful that it can track supernatural people because of it. As a note, in modern technological parlance, trillions of operations per second indicates that, it, that this thing that takes up an entire floor is approximately as powerful as an iPhone 12 or a Samsung S23 smartphone. They stopped using Sunburst computers, which they tend not to, uh, to trust anymore. So take that, Pentax. We get a bunch of information on the people. Zotos, who has a family history of paranormal investigation, General Clifford, veteran who has stumbled upon the existence of the Sabbat, Felicity Price, who thinks that everyone else is compromised, and Maurice Edwards, who has a compulsive gambling problem. Uh, again, this one is fine. The information is perfectly fine. The NSA is one of those organizations that if you dig into it, where you're like, I knew they, were, they had done some sh shady stuff. This is pretty shady. Likewise, with just about any other uh, organization in the US government that you decide to do investigation on. But again, a bunch of useful things. I, again, I was kind of surprised there weren't any systems, but I guess this is one of those things that like this is intended for werewolf. So the answer to the question of how do we get in is we use the umbra, we use a gift, or we just tear it apart with our claws. They weren't necessarily contemplating people using hacking abilities like a virtual adept or using like matter or correspondence or mind to kind of make their way in. Uh, Adam, what did you think about chapter three? I thought it was it was an interesting look at the NSA. It tells us that a lot of division within the NSA and too much secrecy has opened them up to outside supernatural factions uh, gaining influence there. That made this uh, quite interesting. A lot of good material. I liked the uh, virtual adepts and technocracy uh, links worked into this chapter. Looks like the New World Order has claimed the NSA for its own, which again ties it in really well to Mage and gets me motivated. Thumbs up, but I, I don't have a real detailed uh, analysis of this chapter, but uh, certainly enjoyed it. I'm ready for chapter four. 
Chapter four, other agencies. We start out with the CIA, where they say that they clashed with the Bruja who run the KGB at the height of the Cold War. I don't know if this is actually the case where the Bruja ran the KGB or they're doing that thing where they're just calling all communists Bruja, which again, I think is kind of funny. They talk about how they've run into the Dream Speakers and some other new supernatural group. If you're looking for an absolutely damning history of the CIA and its history of incompetence and destruction, I recommend the book Legacy of Ashes. Link will be in the show notes. They are housed in Langley, Virginia, and it is poorly defended against the supernatural, which implies that there are other places that are better defended against the supernatural, and I would have liked more information about that because all of these defenses appear to be trivially sidestepped by a single wraith. Then we get on page 50, the single greatest page to ever have been produced in the history of the world of darkness, Bob Schnabel's Pyramid of Satanic Power, TM. I hope we choose to make this the show art because it is just an absolute gem. If not, it's going to be in the show notes. This is a work of genius. This is inspiration. Looking at it allows me to roll to regain a point of willpower. This is the world of darkness I know and love. It is so good that it was reprinted in Hunters Hunted 2. The reason I don't like Vampire 5th Edition is Bob Schnoblin, to the best of my knowledge, has yet to make an appearance. And once it does, it will clearly catapult itself into the ranks of the greatest RPG of all time. But choosing not to do that, here we are. It includes such elements as the nine unknown men, Satan, the Brotherhood of the Euthanatos, the Trilateral Commission, Charles Manson, connected to the Masons, connected to Black Sabbath, connected to Captain Glasswalker, connected to the Technogarchy. I don't know about you, Adam, but the Technogarchy sounds way more intimidating than this technocracy that we've been talking about for so many years. The Druid Prince is connected to both Ben and Jerry's and the Verbena. I like that the Home Shopping Network has little like enunciator lines about it. The Children of Gaia are behind water fluoridation. The Vampire Nuns are connected with both the Giovanni and the Vatican. It's great. I love it. It's the best thing ever. Moving on, it talks about how the CDC has discovered vampires because they tend to spread AIDS. And I'm like, yep, that's the mid-90s. The Drug Enforcement Agency focuses on cartels, but they are learning about other conspiracies that are vastly more sophisticated. Give me information about supernatural drug runners, please. State and local police have the most information ultimately, but it is highly fragmentary. The Department of Defense has some information, and it kind of goes then into the branches of government service where it talks about Congress is listed as being much more corrupt and out of touch than they are in actual reality. The Supreme Court has little contact. It would be great if the Supreme Court turned out to be the characters that had the most information and that like their robes were made of premium or something like that. And we got to have uh, Supreme Court justices laying down the hammer as, as vampire hunters. The president is in the dark. There's They have a little information on there being aliens. And that's, that's about it. Uh, what did you think about chapter four? It was good, but it was too short. I, I thought chapter four just needed more pages and, and more words. But yes, Bob Schnoblin's Pyramid of Satanic Power is absolutely awesome. I am glad that someone has finally laid bare the facts of the matter. I knew that the Star Trek fans were up to no good. I always suspected, but Bob Schnoblin has brought it to light. And from now on, if any of you Star Trek fans are listening with your holodecks and your tricorders, we're on to you. The CIA is keeping tabs on you, and you're not going to get away with it, whatever it is you might be up to. There were some good plot hooks in here uh, for different government agencies. I just wish the chapter was longer. Uh, it, it just needed to be longer. I mean, when lined up against chapters two and three, which had you know so much good stuff, it seems like an injustice that this chapter was clipped short. 
let's see let's take a look at chapter five and this one is for storytellers claims it will equip us for running a game about government agents who hunt the supernatural i want to know if it helps me run npcs for my mage game three themes are recommended mystery horror and paranoia mystery as in there's something big going on but you can't figure it out horror as in mounting danger and you know you can't fight back paranoia meaning little clues tell you something is after you but you might be wrong you just can't tell uh, these three themes fit well with classic World of Darkness, and that's no surprise. The book was written with the first Hunters Hunted in mind. The book was a supplement for Vampire, which all the World of Darkness games is the best connected to the gothic punk setting. I think these themes work well for mortal tier characters, and they don't clash with how Mage was presented in the first two editions. I would emphasize the abstract horror of Mage rather than the visceral horror of Vampire. The fear of a strange man who turns the world upside down suddenly, rather than the fear of a monstrous man who might physically attack you. The section on mood is rather weak. We're advised to keep things scary, then told mystery is a mood as well as a theme. I respect the author, but this bit needed a second pass. We get six chronicle ideas. They are general advice on types of chronicle. Chronicles, agents versus vampires. The agencies think they understand vampires better than they do. If they move against vampires, they will suffer for it. While true, I think the agencies can strike a real blow with dedication. Agents versus werewolves. The agencies know basically nothing about werewolves. The agents could quickly become national experts. Uh, it states the werewolves might be violent monsters or win the agents' loyalties. I think the guru wouldn't be that appealing to regular humans after agents are poking into their business. Agents versus mages. The technocracy has been very successful keeping all mages unknown to the agencies, although Bob Schnoblin has discovered the technocracy's real name is the technogarchy. Oh boy, I have to update all my notes <laughs> Exactly, Anyways. find and replace. <laughs> <laughs> Although this makes sense and it is mysterious for the agents to face the unknown, couldn't we have gotten more than this? I feel like so many World of Darkness books consider vampire and werewolf, but punt when it comes to mage. Agents versus wraiths. Wraiths are an unknown. The end. So why is this section here? Agents versus the government. If you want an X-Files game, this is it. The upper echelons want to keep the agents in the dark. Agents will be fighting opponents of equal abilities. As a storyteller working with NPC agents, this option has utility, and this book helps me pull it off. This section ends with the author telling libertarians to knock themselves out. I I laughed at that. I'm not a libertarian, but I lean in that direction at times. Finally, agents versus other horrors. We're told to read Book of the Worm, Book of Madness, and Werewolf Storyteller's Handbook. A bit weak, but perhaps helpful. Some brief suggestions on how to use Risen or Mummies would have been better, but no book is perfect. We get a description of how the masquerade of vampires is different from the veil of were-creatures. Uh, werewolves are more violent and less discreet, but the delirium covers their trail, and there aren't many of them. It's easier to get a downed vampire than a metis werewolf carcass, so physical evidence favors learning about vampires. Agents who encounter werewolves repeatedly get mounting bonuses to willpower rolls and can overcome delirium. The book should have mentioned these agents make good recruits for mages as acolytes. This book is technically a werewolf supplement, so we get a section detailing their frustrations with government. Their tribal culture and direct nature give them almost no influence over government institutions. This makes sense to me. Glasswalkers have some involvement with city politics in Rust Belt states and the industrial northeast. Children of Gaia have influence in left-of-center grassroots groups but have had trouble utilizing it. The Silver Fangs have kinfolk in the Kennedys, family with political influence in the U.S. to this day. Uh, does this mean when werewolves attack they're going to ask me how I voted? <laughs> the Shadow Lords and their kinfolk want you to vote Republican. I'm afraid to go camping now. Would anyone blame storytellers who ignore this part of the book? The Wendigo, Actena, and Black Furies support political special interest groups. I give up. I'm not voting anymore. It's too risky.
We look at the FBI now. They have upset the cult of ecstasy, but in the world of darkness, their funding is worse than the real world because their interference with Hollywood pissed off the Toreador vampires. Wow, I did not see that coming. The virtual adepts can call FBI agents to a scene if technocracy agents threaten. Their interference in FBI computers is getting noticed and may be removed soon. We get detailed write-ups for five FBI leaders and a former leader. There are great ties here to vampires, werewolves, and wraiths, none to mages, unfortunately. I suggest adding an NPC in charge of SAD Electronic Security who has ties to a mage group. The inside scoop on the groups inside the NSA National Security Agency is next. The Neo-Luddites, despite hating the technocracy, are manipulated by them. As they look for technocracy influence, they are actually gathering intel for the technocracy. Sometimes you just can't win. The goddamn magpies, with a funny spelling, uh, have a cooperative alliance with the glasswalkers, but don't know they are werewolves. Delphi is three tradition mages. Uh, one is probably a virtual adept. They work to weaken the technocracy's hold on the NSA, while the technocracy is trying to shut them down. The regulators are controlled by the New World Order and Iteration X. They are called in as enforcers when needed. The crow's nest is used by the New World Order to spy on government agencies and train their new recruits. It is run by a French woman called the Baroness. We have a G.I. Joe villain here? Seriously? The NSA has New World Order mages, a pawn knowingly working for the Camarilla vampires, and another pawn knowingly working for the Sabat vampires. Company picnics must be a hoot. The CIA's computer network has been infiltrated by the technocracy, virtual adepts, and the glasswalker werewolves. Two vampire clans have less direct political influence. I can't be the only one that sees the CIA as a great opportunity for mages to work with. Uh, it's there for the taking. We get a full write-up on Bob Schnoblin. He has three subordinates now. Bob is in over his head. He wants to investigate real leads, but he's not equipped to deal with what he finds. He and his subordinates could get killed or dominated by someone nasty. The Center for Disease Control is contested territory between the progenitors and Pentex. Many of our listeners know Pentex is a large evil company from Werewolf the Apocalypse that is dominated by the worm, a force of cosmic corruption. The Rubena have gained a small hold on the CDC, a Center for Disease Control, but their influence is growing. Talk about a culture clash. I wouldn't be surprised if the Rubena needed other mages to help them navigate scientific as well as bureaucratic culture. Nice possibilities there. The Drug Enforcement Agency is up against the Cali, a cocaine cartel of Latin America. Pentex is spiking their cocaine with nasty additives. The drug trade also involves the cult of ecstasy, progenitors, syndicate, setite vampires, and Giovanni vampires. These groups have contacts hidden in the DEA, but very little influence. Glasswalkers and Children of Gaia are werewolf tribes who get their people into the Environmental Protection Agency, but their numbers and influence vary over the years. The army is running Project Cogliostro at a secret base in the Rocky Mountains. They want to unlock the secrets of the mages but are having limited success. The Air Force runs Project Psy, or PSI, to understand mental powers. The Navy captured a Rokea were-shark years ago and struggles to understand it. Yeah, yeah, me too. Pentex, the New World Order, and the Syndicate are lobbying to influence Congress. The Camarilla of the Vampires has good knowledge of what passes there. The Office of the President of the United States is free of supernatural influence. Several supernatural forces protect it. Paradox will smack down 
viciously any mages who want to mess with the president. What about the prime ministers of Canada, Britain, and Australia? Uh, can I push them around? Listeners, send us an email if you know. We look around the world now. Russia was under the thumb of Bruja vampires from 1917 to the late 80s. Then Baba Yaga put her Sabbat henchmen in charge. In Britain, the Tremere vampires have heavy influence on military intelligence. Scotland Yard is controlled by Ventru vampires. The Verbena have influence throughout the British Isles, but especially in Wales. Continental Europe is a stronghold of the Camarilla vampires. The Canadian government is up for grabs as vampires, werewolves, and mages struggle for it. Canadian listeners, could you please ask your prime minister to take care of that? Central and South America suffer from Pentex and the Sabat holding power there. The werewolves are waging all-out war in the Amazon rainforest. Japan is attractive, but native supernatural forces repel outsiders. Some mention of mages would be nice. Mossad is Israel's secret service. Settite vampires and the Nefandi cooperate to pull its strings. That sounds like a volatile agreement that mages could exploit. We finish with the Puppet Masters, a section on five high-level groups that pull others' strings. The New World Order has two cabals of mages inside the NSA, and both report to Emil Zotos, a long-lived New World Order mage. The New World Order gets valuable data from NSA systems and doesn't want to lose its hold. The Star Chamber is a private club of wealthy businessmen. The syndicate has infiltrated it to observe. The Star Chamber has an informant in the NSA, but the New World Order sees no harm in that. The Star Chamber influences international politics and can even cause small nations to crumble. Some members are ghouls, so it shouldn't be surprising that they know about vampire politics. They prey on weak, unaligned vampires for blood. The Glasswalkers are a tribe of werewolves that like technology and living in cities. They have moles reporting to them in the CIA and NSA. I can see using them in werewolf-focused games, but outside of that, they complicate werewolf society more than I want. Uh, when running mage, I pretty much ignore the glasswalkers. The Sabat are a society of vampires that fight against the Camarilla. They are known for sadism and recklessness. They have some control in the NSA, but don't utilize it well. They have pulled out money to create a private hideout called the Menagerie, where they experiment on supernatural creatures. The Sabat's clumsy manipulations of the NSA may expose them soon, but the technocracy realizes that will draw attention away from mages. The elders running the Camarilla are uncomfortable with how quickly things change in government agencies. They ordered the younger vampires to leave the agencies alone. A small group of tech-savvy vampires is controlling a subdirector inside the NSA. That was an information-heavy chapter. Terry, what did you think of it? There were some deets. I like that there is a storyteller player division. This is an approach I kind of wish Mage took at times. There are a lot of books in a lot of games that will have a, here's the public-facing information, here's what your character would know, here's what the storyteller knows. So it's one of those things that reading over those first few chapters, you can look at it and be like, Delphi, mm, seems like there might be mages, and later you're like, yep. Mages. I like that. It makes it very convenient because it answers the question of what would my character within the organization reasonably know. I wish it had more recommendations on different themes to play. Like, Mage is a game doesn't fit to me strictly within the horror setting. To me, it is more urban fantasy and it has a bunch of different directions it can go. I kind of wish this book took that approach that you could have a game ranging from we are humans and we are going up against a meat grinder and if we succeed, it is entirely accidental to something that is closer to a Scooby-Doo style game where your characters are investigators dealing with bumbling night folk and so on. I think anything in that spectrum is perfectly acceptable and a little bit information on how to play other styles I think would be useful. Again, that's something that Mage spoils us for because it's like, here's Mage. Here are the 19 themes that you can explore as opposed to some of the other games in World of Darkness where you're like, this is Vampire. The theme that you get to explore 
is vampirism. The mood is vampiric. And you're like, oh, okay, that's uh, that's pretty narrow. Got it. I'm not saying that's all the vampire can do, but that's it, generally when you see write-ups, it's pretty, pretty narrow. I, I like that it emphasized uh, how to encourage paranoia. The hard thing with paranoia, again, is inciting paranoia without creating 10,000 red herrings is something that I sometimes struggle with. And a little bit of advice on that I think would have been good. I like that it mentions specifically the government doesn't know who the Nefandi and Rauders are yet. I like that it mentions that like, yes, the Garu are quite potent, but they are politically not powerful because they're not that good at that talking thing. And you're like, that that makes sense. I like that Grubholt, for instance, is listed as being a Garu kinfolk, and he believes that status is a curse. I like those little peeks into what could be the psychology. I don't know if I needed the whole section where it's like blah, 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 controls, blah, 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 and so on. I guess it's useful on one end, but again, I guess I'm just used to mage where generally at best as time goes on, the technocracy is like, let's prevent the mortals from blowing themselves up and kind of control things on the periphery. Where here it's like, nope, Soviet Russia controlled by the Bruja. Bet you didn't know that. And you're like, that's a choice. Also, it was all completely obstructed by Baba Yaga in one extended 12-hour cutscene. And you're like, okay. All the characters presented in here are in their mid to late 30s. And I just keep going, well, apparently I should be running the FBI by now. What have I done with my life? I liked the little background details and the character twist that we get. This is something that I am focusing on because as someone who lives in a major city who has dealt with uh, the difficulties and complications of drug violence and so on, there are a bunch of sidelong references to conflicts over drug supply chains and so on. I would like a little bit more information on that because that to me is a good union of horror, vice, Urban Decay, if that's a theme that you want to run with in your game, as well as money and a thing that is kind of done in the dark that you can hide a lot of supernatural forces in. I also like that it suggests that Jefferson knew about the supernatural. It's like the only presidents to know about the supernatural. Jefferson. And it talks frequently about organizations that have been subverted. Having read through the book, I don't actually know what they mean now. I would need a little bit more information on how to play with that. Like, is the person a ghoul? Are they being dominated? Does someone periodically use presence? Is the mind sphere involved? I would have liked a little more detail because one of the things that would likely happen in a game is spending quality time trying to figure out, okay, how do we reverse this? How do we turn someone into a double agent? And I would need that information to know kind of what I'm going up against. It, it mentions that the uh, Sabat wants to manipulate other supernaturals. Do they? I don't I don't know if that information is reiterated anywhere else, but that suggested a kind of subtlety that I don't normally associate with them. But it mentions that the agencies are changing too fast for the Camarilla, and I, I just thought that was reasonable and accurate. But yeah, perfectly fine chapter. If you don't agree with a recommendation they make, don't don't use it. We got a bunch of character sheets. It's a it's a weird flashback. Like seeing a lot of modern games where all characters are now generally sketches with a few kind of key details about them it is weird to see like page or page and a half write-ups with full art and i'm like oh yeah this used to be a thing how about that um but those are my thoughts on chapter five tying this into mage it is interesting to me to see how thoroughly the new world order has a hold on the NSA, the National Security Agency in, in the U.S. federal government. It just seems like they have such a hold on it and so many of their people invested in it that they 
are probably going to consider it something precious and they don't want to see the situation change. I'll, I'll bet the New World Order is happy that some vampire groups and some minor werewolf groups, etc., have their people in the NSA because the New World Order agents are going to say, oh good, now they're here, they're passing communications out that we can spy on and we can find out what all these other supernatural groups are doing. We just love this. But what the New World Order is really going to hate is some mages, you know, some, some non-technocracy mages coming in and saying, we're going to shake this up. We're going to change this. In fact, you could probably make some parts of the New World Order panic by threatening to mess with the NSA when you're not even prepared to really do it. And so I think that would be a fun thing to explore in your games. It's like, don't upset the apple cart. Look, look, we'll, we'll give you this. We'll give you that. Just don't mess with our NSA gig. It's like, oh, I really want to mess with it. I got my guys there that don't really exist, but I'm telling you they do. <laughs> I think you could you could have some real good um, uh, plot threads uh, pulling out of, of that fact alone. But hey, there is this chapter six, and it is a 30-page story for agents called the St. Clair Contract. There are eight scenes, an epilogue, and three extra scenes that can be put in anywhere or dropped. We are warned mature themes are involved. St. Clair is a fictional small town on the shores of Lake Ontario. Several kidnappings have made national news, and FBI agents get assigned to the case. The setup makes it clear the agents are pitted against the enemies of Werewolf the Apocalypse. It reads like a supplement for Werewolf 2nd Edition. Among the villain NPCs, we have Shaggy and Scooby-Doo from the Scooby-Doo cartoon show. Why? I don't know. After this recording, Terry is going to explain it to me. I can't wait. A frighteningly deranged werewolf is using supernatural powers to kidnap children and then commit violence against them. Uh, forgive me if I don't go into detail. There's an intended showdown in an abandoned coal mine. It would be helpful to have a map or some suggested mechanics to handle the kidnapper using multiple mine shafts to elude and then ambush the players. Uh, instead, we'd get just sort of this vague description. There's a lot of mine shafts and the villain is going to uh, manipulate them. It's like, well, how? I mean, again, you know, some, some, some game mechanics or, or some sort of a diagram or map would help me as a storyteller just phenomenally. The town also has a Pentex-controlled factory uh, creating tainted cosmetic products. Three normal werewolves enter the town to fight Pentex. A black spiral dancer werewolf and his three human henchmen also come to complicate things. The story structure intends the storyteller to run the eight scenes in order. There is some flexibility, but not a whole lot. Players could do such a wide range of things in more than a week's game time. I think this story structure doesn't have the flexibility it should have. There are also several problems happening in the town and clues the players receive may be hard to interpret as a result. After the showdown with the kidnapper, there is a football game and bonfire where the town has a kind of psychic disaster. This story has too many things going on and too many powerful werewolf NPCs. Uh, I see many points where the story could be derailed, leaving the storyteller wondering how to get back on track. An experienced storyteller could keep the NPC profiles in mind and improvise, but I think this story will be used by more inexperienced storytellers. I think less powerful NPCs are called for as well as care making sure the players get information quickly enough to make sense of what they find in the town so they don't go chasing rabbit trails. Also, the repeated instances of rape and domestic abuse are going to be a bit too much for, for some players. A uh, smaller page count with a more focused story would have made things easier. Uh, plus, it gives more pages to Chapter 4, which could have made good use of them. Uh, that's my summary of the St. Clair contract. Again, it is 30 pages. I don't think it's really necessary to go into all of the details. I just wanted to give you a summary. But, uh, uh, Terry, what were your thoughts on St. Clair's contract. I love these stories where what the characters do may accidentally cause plot. 
there is a recurring theme in a lot of World of Darkness, like canned adventures where it's like, yeah, all this stuff's going to happen. You might be able to meddle with it, but don't count on it. Also, there may be clues, but you probably won't understand them. Also, there's an antagonist who you probably can't stop. So enjoy the adventure of the format I refer to as walking into a clusterfuck. There's a lot of supernatural creatures. They have a lot of dice. They get to throw a lot of dice compared to you. I wish there were some discussion of, yeah, like these are the edges that you can bring to bear, but it really feels like it is just dropping you into a world of supernatural menace, which is perfectly fine. That is a way to do things. But it is just, yes, this just appear, appears to be a meat grinder. I would love to have a Hunter's Hunted game that did like the Dungeon Crawl Classics meat grinder where it's like, okay, we're going to deploy 20 agents. Your characters for the next session are going to be any ones that survive. <laughs> <laughs> and you just kind of go from there. And you're like, oh, hand grenade took out three. You're now down to 17 characters. And you're like, oh, dip. <laughs> So I'd love to see that that technology taken on at some point. Yeah, it's it's dark, it's twisted, it's a little bit internally confusing. There's things that happen off screen that the characters aren't going to know about, but it tells the storyteller this is going to happen. And it specifically says, yeah, the characters are probably not going to see this, but... And you're like, why why is this a thing? But it does create a fully elucidated world, and you can certainly pick from it. And more importantly, the rest of the book is good enough that if I don't have this, it's fine. Like, if you were to be like, this is 70 pages and it comes with a free adventure or something like that, awesome. Like, that's that's perfectly fine by me. It does give you a bunch of character sheets. The theme of it is pretty dark. It hits the horror elements of werewolf to me pretty hard, pretty quickly. And I'm like, yeah, this is this is why I play mage. I want a game where people deal with the ramifications of a whole bunch of hyper-intelligent progenitor bees wondering what it means to be a person in the modern world. That's, that's why I play these games, not because I want to deal with a corrupt cosmetic firm that convinces a small town to burn their homecoming queen amidst someone who abducts children. So uh, needless to say, content warning on this boy. But yeah, it's an adventure. In the appendix, there are some templates. I, I thought it was fun that the first template was like totally molder from the, the X-Files. I mean, it's like, oh yeah, okay, that, that's, that's fun to see. This was written when X-Files was really popular on TV. So I think it's natural that if you are an X-Files fan, you're, this is uh, where you can really flex those muscles. And if you are interested in, in interacting with this book and you want some um, you know, inspiration or some source material, then go and watch The X-Files. It's out on DVD. I think it's standard DVD and Blu-ray at this point. I got a Blu-ray box set and watched through it just because I figured this is probably the sort of thing World of Darkness fans are going to ask me about. And I'm just going to give you my brief viewer's guide for The X-Files. Uh, I like The X-Files. I think it's a great show. Go and watch it. Uh, my favorite season was actually season one. So if you're saying, hey, look, I'm not going to commit the you know a couple of months of my life to this. Can I just get a little bit? It's like, okay, watch season one. You're done. You're good. And it's going to help you uh, run some World of Darkness interesting scenarios. If you want to really get into the X-Files, my advice is watch the first uh, five seasons, if you have the time, of course. Then watch the first X-Files movie, Fight the Future, was its, its byline. That plot-wise fits on right to the end of season five, and it gets you ready to watch season six. You know, go ahead and watch season six. That's a good one. My advice is stop there. There are seasons seven through 11, but I thought the show lost its direction. It, it swapped out actors for new actors. It just, 
didn't do as well after season six. So if, if you're dedicated, yeah, by all means, go for it. But if you just want the good stuff, then stop after season six. This book did a good job of supporting uh, conspiracies and paranoia, which is what the old world of darkness was built on. Uh, so I thought this book worked really well with a number of World of Darkness sorts of scenarios, not just mage, but vampire, hunters hunted type of scenarios, mummy, and, and other things as well. It explained why supernaturals are interested in agencies and what they get out of them. And so I think that is helpful for storytellers who are just trying to uh, try this sort of material for the first time. It's like, well, if the Glasswalkers had a man in the NSA, what would they get out of it? Well, this, this tells us, so that's nice. I think they should have put more emphasis on acolytes. Mages like to have non-mages who are competent and can do things for them and help them out, and they certainly reward them for their, their efforts. And I think there should have been more emphasis on how agents make really good, or former agents make really good acolytes for mages. They are well-educated, uh, they are skilled, they are intelligent. They not only know how to keep secrets, but they understand the importance of keeping a low profile and you know keeping on the down low. These are the sorts of people that mages would really uh, get a lot out of working with. Very good writing in this book. I was turning the pages quickly and happily. Uh, I think the, the author uh, showed some, some good ability. It was treated, I thought, too much like a werewolf book. I, th I think it needed to pull in more of the rest of the World of Darkness perspective. Terry and I were talking about the author, Chris Howard, uh, before this. I, I suspected that he was a werewolf author, which was why there was such a heavy werewolf emphasis. And apparently, from what Terry found, Chris Howard has worked on a lot of different World of Darkness projects. I'm sure he did as good a job on them as he did on this. But Project Twilight was part of the Year of the Hunter uh, series. I think it was five books. And each of those Year of the Hunter books was pegged to one of the main game lines. And this was pegged to Werewolf the Apocalypse. And so I think the author you know, took his responsibility seriously, whereas I would have liked to have seen more of the rest of the World of Darkness uh, mixed in evenly. How useful is this for NPCs? I think there is solid material here. I like the Numina. I like the Merits and Flaws. Good source material you know, for lore and setting. I just wish they had more stats on the equipment. That That's just the thing that's missing out of this. I think even players are going to flip through Chapter 1 and say, oh, this equipment sounds cool. What are the details on this? Well, sorry, pal. You're going to have to look at another World of Darkness book. So if a huge hairy monster attacks and asks how you voted, what do you say? Send us an email with your answer. If it happens to me, I need to say something. But uh, that's my general thoughts on the book. And Terry, what were yours? I was delighted at how useful this was. It is indelibly from the 90s as happens. It reflects the concerns and considerations of the era where you had these kind of dark government conspiracies and lacking oversight and so on. Nowadays, if I pick up a game like Hunter 5th Edition, it more is a meditation on unchecked power than on conspiracy. So again, every game reflects kind of the milieu it comes from, and that is entirely fine to me. So if this feels weird or alien to you in some way, please know that it is a, at least to me, somewhat accurate view of kind of what was in the zeitgeist concerning what organizations were, were kind of doing in, in the era before 9-11. The information presented, I thought, was perfectly usable. I really like the A-B division between this is stuff the players would know, this is stuff the storyteller would know. Uh, mechanically, I do feel a little bit let down by it. As Adam said, some statistics on it, like how much damage does this gun do? It's fine to just consult the core rulebook for some of the lower level things, but when you're getting a rocket launcher or a flamethrower or specialized information like that, then a, a little bit of more information would be useful there. And that way I don't have to constantly pull out the, the core rulebook if nothing else. It's like, okay, I got a fighter jet. What can I actually do with that the 
characters seem wildly overmatched compared to what they're going up against. But I guess to some extent, that is the intent. I would have liked some more uh, systems. I guess I'm kind of spoiled by things like requisitions, giving at least a starting point for how you would navigate a bureaucracy. But there's always the argument that in a game of uh, Wraith or Hunters Hunted or something like that, that the organization itself is kind of one of the key components and that you don't want to have an abstract system because you want people to role play through that. Sometimes that is what you want and sometimes it's not, which is why we have a system for, for instance, agendas and changeling where politics is important, but it may not have the supremacy or primacy that it does in other games. Um, this makes me curious for other similar supplements that could be interesting. So for instance, in first edition, I don't know if it's Hunter's Hunter or another text, but we get, for instance, the first preview of mages before Mage actually came out. And this kind of makes me curious to explore those. For instance, in 1993, in Hunter's Hunted, we get Arctos, who is listed as a potent mage in Greenwich Village, New York. And you see the information about his friends. And you'd be like, this person is a war mage. This person is a flower mage. And I'm like, yeah, I really wish I could see what they thought Mage was going to be back then before we had the sphere system and the the traditions. But it is just further proof that if you kind of keep your eyes open, there are a lot more things that we can call Mage supplements, as it were, than at first we think. I remember there was a 90% off sale or, or something ridiculous on Drive RPG for the original Scion RPG supplements. And I was like, hey, this set of unlabeled High Umbra source books came out in the early 2000s and currently it is five dollars for all of them and because mage fans take everything literally they're like these do not appear to be marked as mage the ascension games do you believe that this was a misprint i'm like no i meant that figuratively thanks for stopping by but still uh yeah uh, keep an open mind as adam and i finish at least this set of installments for Tomes of Magic. We may go back and cover some of the World of Darkness supplements, but if you have an idea on what we should read, not necessarily as Tomes of Magic, but but maybe as something similar, drop us a line in the Discord, shoot us an email, and maybe we talk about it. And uh, that's that's all I got. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to share three uh, story ideas, yeah. and uh, then we're going to wrap up today. Number one, two agents in the FBI's special affairs department who seemed harmless before start assassinating people in the SAD's office and purging systems. Implants in their heads frustrate technomagic, and high-tech weapons make them dangerous. The players are nearby and get a desperate call for help. The cyborg agents are controlled by the copycat, a rogue technocrat who wants to destroy agency systems to keep his secrets from the technocracy. As technocrat enforcers converge on the building, the players get a call for help. The copycat's real target is a young virtual adept a few blocks away in another agency's building. With the technocracy forces gone, the copycat is working his way down to the basement where the virtual adept is trying to hide. The players learn the adept holds data that the Council of Nine needs. Can they locate the adept and escape before the copycats cyborgs catch them they'll need to circumvent high-tech systems controlled by the copycat learn their opponent's tricks and keep a high-strung teenager quiet at the same time uh, number two the new world order has pulled the national security agency strings for years the nsa highly prizes their gains in psychic research and keeps a team of psychics they are eager to find more the new world order wants to perfect their own research on psychics so they can shut down the phenomenon the friends of foster is a secret group that finds young psychics and hides them the nsa has tracked the friends of foster to a nashville tennessee neighborhood 
They've rounded up federal agents and police to supervise their own psychic team as they split up to search for the hideout. And nearby Euthanatos Chantry wants the young psychics for acolytes. The players are asked to infiltrate the NSA's search team and bring the psychics in. The opportunities to learn what the Euthanatos and the New World Order are up to are too good to pass up. What will be discovered during a tense few days of canvassing the city? Will the players stick to the plan or feel sympathy for the psychics? Maybe they'd like a psychic team of their own. Several possibilities will open up and new enemies will be made. Number three, Delphi is a very secret group of three tech-savvy tradition mages inside the National Security Agency. Virtual adepts in the digital web see the signs of what they call a Sweet 16. This is the formation of a new artificial intelligence that is so interesting, other artificial intelligences flock to the scene, making a large disturbance. Delphi's info-gathering AI is about to attract so much attention their cover will be blown. The players overhear or are asked to help. Delphi's members live at the NSA's Fort George Meade complex in Maryland. They have a matter transference device so they can escape through the digital web after their data transfers, but the players must cover the trail so no technocrats pursue. After this, the players will have to escape the NSA complex, which is the home of the Regulators, a team of Men in Black and Iteration X enforcers. The electromagnetic pulse network across the Thousand Acre complex can be used by or against the Regulators, depending on how clever the players are. Many successes can wipe out electronics, while a few successes stun systems temporarily. Can the players hack the network in time? Will they fight their way out or use the Army's visiting team of delegates to their advantage? Well, those are three story ideas that occurred to me while I was reading the book, and if they start some story ideas of your own, then my work here is done. So, Terry, were there any quotes that jumped off the page for you? I can't imagine that any book with Bob Schnoblin would have any interesting quotes. Well, we don't get many Bob Schnoblin quotes, but we do. If I could just read off and paint a word picture of the Pyramid of Satanic Power, TM. I would. One, there's the bit in the opening fiction where the woman says that in a rush of movement, the werewolf tears my throat out, and then it cuts forward an hour to the woman getting coffee. I'm like, yep, secretly a mummy. Then later, there there's a section talking about the government and looking at supernatural creatures, and it says, the proven existence of such creatures and rays and vampires, who are dead or after all, will confuse the basic principles of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If a Garu kills a vampire because he is of the worm, is it a crime of hate? Is it even murder? Is making somebody bloodbound a form of slavery? Do Garu violate leash laws? Should all supernaturals be herded into camps and exterminated? And you're like, well, that got on the nose. <laughs> real fast <laughs> I like what games are like what their version of existential crisis are and they're like this thing seems to be sentient but doesn't look like a human and seems to be capable of love and feeling pain is shooting it wrong yes yes it is maybe we don't do that it's not that hard but yeah, I, I thought that was a good summary of the, some of the false questions <laughs> that could be brought up by the game. Yeah, that, that quote is a winner. I think that's worth repeating. Uh, but there'd be some discussion on the Discord on that. And please join us there. We discuss a lot of fun things related to the game and some other things too. If you have something to say, please contact us at magethepodcast at gmail.com with your questions, comments, or feedback. Subscribe to Mage the Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and other aggregators. If you like the show, others might like it too. And if you leave a review of Mage the Podcast, it makes us more visible in their searches. You can follow us on Twitter at Mage the Podcast. We're also on the web at magethepodcast.com. You can listen to past episodes there and see the complete show notes. We have a YouTube channel now where you can find our episodes. There's a link in the show notes, but you can also search YouTube for Mage the Podcast. All lowercase, uh, don't sweat the colon, you'll find us. We're also on Mastodon. The link is in the show notes. Uh, this episode was assisted greatly by our executive producers. We certainly appreciate what they do for us. Terry, can you share their names? I can. 
I would like to thank Oracle Sean Gallagher, Oracle Benjamin Bendelow, Oracle Buck Gregory, Oracle Christopher Phillips, Oracle Guy Conan Stewart, Oracle Josh Hillerup, Oracle Puka G, Oracle Jay Weiner, Oracle McHale, Oracle the Crew of Erebus, Archmaster Andrew Edelstein, Archmaster Brad of the Blue, Archmaster Bubba the Pale One, Archmaster Dan Svensson, Archmaster Derek Semsek, Archmaster Jason Vines, Archmaster Morgan Aran, and Archmaster Nathan Weaver, as well as Alex, Alexia, Andrews S, Anon, Baderfi, Birdo, Blizz Hibbert, Blake Ryan, Brandon, Bryce Perry, Chris Blake, Sin Shotis, Daniel Cuppin, Daniel Scribner, Darren Hennessy, David Roy, Dan Osborne, Eli Levenger, Eric Schwenk, Frigo Rock, George Laura, Henry Kraft, Ia Bolt, Jason Kennedy, Jason W. Briggs, Jake Aspie, Jeff Bryn, Jenna F., John Magnuson, Jolyn Andes, Laws and Stuff, Joshua Heath, Kathleen Halperin, Chris Kinner, Leroy Bryce, Leslie Weatherstone, Matthew Proyle, Michael Creedle, Michael Parker, Nathan Weaver, Nibero, Neil Patterson, Nikita Klamanov, Oliver Schindler, Patrick McNamara, Patrick Mulder, Pax Cow, Rachel Grace, Richard Bat Brewster, Robart the Robot, Ryan Stray, Rob H., Ryan Kendi, Samuel Tobin, Darfish, Stephen Carton, Thrice Great, Vincent Hamilton, Walter, William Connolly, William Martin, and Zach Rules. Thank you for your support. If you would like to become an executive producer for Mage the Podcast, it would help us keep producing episodes like this one. You'd also become a part of our own council to discuss upcoming projects. The link in the show notes will get you started. Well, thanks everyone for listening, and until next time, truth until paradox, baby. Remember, the truth is out there. You're sure as hell not going to find it, but it's out there. Bye. I may or may not do an episode of my experience with Hunter the Reckoning 5th Edition. Yeah, because that game seems to be boring, and I don't know why I agreed to run a bunch of it at Gen Con.